This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, By the Blade, the evolution of heroic fantasy. (laughs) So it will come as no surprise that uh, this is brought to you by Jules reading things again. Yeah, I can't stop. You can't stop. It's a problem. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I mean, I understand that you've been dipping back into some classic fantasy. Yeah, um, especially that known as heroic fantasy or sword and sorcery. I prefer the term sword and sorcery, frankly, because I think it encapsulates what it is and there's Mm -hmm. a bit of confusion over whether heroic fantasy also means epic, but obviously we'll get into that. Yeah. Um, Anyway, it kind of struck me that this was a subgenre we haven't really touched upon, even though it's kind of a progenitor for a lot of different subgenres of fantasy. Yeah, absolutely. and heroic fantasy or as jill said sword and sorcery as it's better known is kind of as as old as high or epic fantasy but it does concentrate its storytelling mode in a different direction um which we'll get into in a minute (laughs) yeah Uh, i think part of the problem uh the reason it's it's got kind of a checkered history with a reputation of sexism and you know some of that's deserved and some of it really isn't and the more i've dug into it the more i'm like actually this has been one of the more um, egalitarian types of fantasy that pushed things forward and experimented with new ideas. Yeah. I think it's because, yeah, people have these very particular ideas of sword and sorcery and they've got the idea of certain covers, you know, you know the ones I mean. <laughs> I know the covers. Honestly, you know, we'll get into this, but honestly, I look at those covers and some of them I actually enjoy. I've got to admit it. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to get offended by a big pair of boobs. I'm sorry. It's yeah. just, it's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> now, chances are, if you've read a personal quest story in a fantasy setting, it was directly or indirectly influenced by sword and sorcery. So you might think, oh, I've never touched that. Um, but actually, chances are you probably have. Yes. Okay, let's look at a definition of sword and sorcery. As far as these definitions actually stretch, because let's face it, whenever you try and define a fantasy subgenre, yeah, um, things become a bit murky pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, for non-fantasy readers, it's easy to lump everything together and assume that anything with a dragon and a sword-wielding hero is fantasy. However, within the relation within the relationship within the relationship of of this fantasy genre within the readership of the fantasy genre there are niches and readers who love things like romanticy may well not be interested in grimdark and those who crave epic fantasy may despise paranormal i gave an example of this the other day in my class where i was like technically you could say oh well here's some high fantasy settings and you have um Lord of the Rings, Legends and Lattes, um, and Ella Enchanted. Technically, they all have the same kind of set in a big fantasy world, magical creatures involve witchcraft and and spellcraft and stuff like that. But by God, they are not the same (laughs) kinds of I mean, you can add a Court of Thorns and Roses in there as well. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, they're really not the same things at all, are they? No, absolutely. 
Okay, so where does sword and sorcery fit within this collection of subgenres? Let's look at some of the subgenres so that we can draw a broader picture. Yes. Get the red string out. <laughs> okay, well, we'll start with epic fantasy, which tends to be huge, immersive, and often follow a big hopeless seeming quest that will affect the entire world um, the books tend to be extremely long and the series are often just as long um, some good examples of this uh, are Lord of the Rings the original the original <laughs> the wheel of time <laughs> the wheel of time I'm still not convinced the wheel of time's over even though someone did fin- I mean it was Robert Jordan who finished off book 14 wasn't yeah it? <laughs> but it's still it feels like it should still be going somewhere like yeah. forever it is um, the wheel yeah. of time the, the wheel <laughs> continues to turn <laughs> definitely um then you've got high fantasy uh, which has a lot of crossover with epic fantasy in terms of length and scope so much so that sometimes they're used interchangeably as terms but um what you find in high fantasies it will definitely contain fantastical elements like magic strange beasts and old gods whereas epic fantasy technically only needs to be set in a world which is imaginary yeah so you can have something which is a high epic fantasy again lord of the rings perfect example of that but you can also have something which is an epic fantasy that definitely isn't a high fantasy and vice versa yeah yeah definitely Okay, uh, the next is Noble Bright Fantasy. Noble, yeah, Noble Bright Fantasy. Um, And this is actually an offshoot of the other two in which while there does tend to be, you know, central conflict as with all stories, uh, the heroes tend to be good or very well intentioned and everything will turn out well in the end. I mean, it really is in the name Noble Bright. Yeah. Conversely, Grimdark is the absolute opposite of this, to the surprise of no one. The main characters are at least morally grey, if not outright villainous. The world is a broken one with many evils and everyone is out for themselves. There, There is a gen- general grimness, a general darkness and griminess to the world itself. Yeah. Um, success in the end is often in spite of the main character's moral compass, not because of it. So Mark Lawrence's Prince of Thorns, or sorry, Broken Empire trilogy, is an an excellent example of this um and you you've also got joe abercrombie who um all his characters are like this and i swear <laughs> to god that and he writes stuff that is very much character episodes if you like rather than something with an overarching plot and it is again um just it, it's grimdark i would i would call it grimdark some people have described the lies of Locke lamora as grimdark yeah. i don't believe it is i think actually lies of Lockmore is modern sword and sorcery but we will get into that yeah I, I was gonna say is that you can you can see why but i was already also thinking i'm not sure it is grimdark it definitely has some grim moments it definitely has some dark moments <laughs> but yeah. i'm not sure it's grimdark <laughs> but as i said we'll get into that Um, And essentially, somewhere between Noble Bright and Grimdark, um, as it actually gave birth to both of them, it's like kind of the parent, uh, sits Sword and Sorcery. Yep. So let's have a little look at the history of Sword and Sorcery. Yeah. Ironically, Sword and Sorcery did not emerge from the fantasy genre at all originally. It It came... Well, its origins can best be traced back to the late 1800s Sword and Cloak, or historical adventure fiction. Mm-hmm. Although it can also claim kinship with the Cloak and Dagger, or spy subgenre of adventure fiction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the, 
The term, I think, was coined by uh, Fritz Lieber in 1961 in response to a letter from Michael Moorcock um, in the fanzine Armour. Uh, or Am- is it Amra? Um, I think that's Amra. Amra, yeah. yeah. Uh, where he demanded a term for the type of fantasy written by Robert E. Howard uh, since 19. 19- 30 since the 1930s i love it that he's like listen i demand a term for this man's particular brand of fantasy <laughs> what's really funny about i mean i, I guess oh, that's kind of it's factual but what strikes me as really funny is this is a bunch of nerds arguing about what to call their special brand of fantasy yeah michael moorcock later became very well known as the author of the classic elric of melnabone series mm-hmm. which is classic sort of sorcery um with a you know a slightly grim dark flavor in places but elric himself is a disillusioned elf lord who has somewhat unwillingly come to the throne. <laughs> um, and he is very much kind of stuck in these political intrigues and things um, that he doesn't really want to be involved in. So almost everything he does is out of self-interest. Yeah. Um, Fritz Lieber, I believe, is also a writer, but he did run these fanzines um, for various types of fantasy. And um, Robert E. Howard is the original creator of Conan the Barbarian. So if there is a parent for the sword and sorcery genre, it is Robert E. Howard, who, I mean, I was surprised to learn that it goes back to the 1930s. I thought it was much more recent than that. Yeah. I I can never hear the word Conan the Barbarian without just hearing Conan. (laughs) Crush your enemies. (laughs) Now, as opposed to epic and high fantasy, uh, sword and sorcery tends to focus on a single or perhaps a dual point of view narrative rather than a large ensemble cast. Yeah. Um, and the main character is almost always morally grey and motivated by the desire for personal gain, uh, whether that is money, love or power. Sometimes it's also revenge. Or revenge, yeah. yeah. Um, basically, we, we've got Conan yeah. in that. You know, if you've read any of the original Conan adventures or, you know, that, that's basically where we are. Yeah. Um, structurally, it moves like adventure fiction, which is no surprise since that's where it came from. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, with many smaller adventures making up the whole of the narrative of a book, or perhaps it was written in a sort of serial format. I believe some of the original Conan stories were serialised originally. Yeah. Um, and it, it sort of eschews the overarching themes of good versus evil in favour of smaller personal battles. Yeah. It also tends to be grounded in real-world social and societal hierarchies, um, which, I mean, we tend to think, oh, well, fantasy tends to do that anyway. Not always. Um, and very much with sword and sorcery, it is, I think, one of the one of the more staple elements. Definitely. I think, and we again, we'll get into this in a bit more detail, but I believe the reason it kind of does this is because it's attempting to engage with and answer the questions of the time so yes you could read sword and sorcery from 1930 and go hmm i'm not sure about the flavor of this or you could read it from 1960s or the 1980s or you could read it now and not even recognize it as sword and sorcery anymore yeah because what it's doing is answering the issues of the, of the time um it's part of the reason why i feel like the lies of Locke lamora 
uh, the Gentleman Bastard series is more sword and sorcery because, mm. okay, you don't have a strapping barbarian as the main character, <laughs> but the moral dubiety is there. The sense of they are, they're, they're, they're not so much out for themselves, but they're definitely trying to just survive. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what those books tend to do, the ongoing theme, the answer and ask question thing that is going on is regarding things like poverty versus affluence power versus powerlessness which is very much of our time yeah so yeah for me that that's that's why it's kind of sword and sorcery yeah and there's even a uh, brains versus brawns but that's actually part of another thing but we'll yeah yeah we'll get into that um it also in terms of sword and sorcery it tends to be grittier and more violent um i mean if you compare it to tolkien who diverts the reader away from the details of the battles um, you tend to find sword and sorcery is much more kind of open and detailed and sometimes very graphic with yeah. the grittier side of things and that can also include the uh the sexy side of things sometimes as well oh big time yeah definitely um what, one of the things i love about it actually is it also contains elements of cosmic even lovecraftian type creatures yeah. or religions and the reason i like this is because generally your your main character is someone who is theoretically very powerful in and of themselves as your average joe they're the best of the best in that respect yeah but then you pit them against this massive snake worshipping cult yeah <laughs> and they're kind of a bit fucked yeah um, so it does several things that i like there one of them is the fact that yeah this is someone who really has to live on their wits etc mm -hmm. in order to bring this thing to an end the other is like they don't ever really seek to understand the cult it's kind of just like I think throwing people off of buildings just because the snake god says so is bad. I'm going to do something about it because yeah. I don't like it. Yeah. I feel like turning people to stone and throwing them into volcanoes, maybe not so good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think because of that, the main character does often have you know they tend to be the barbarian character um they tend to be very physically strong and stuff like that and they do tend to have a lot of anti-hero traits yeah definitely the more byronic hero yeah which is definitely why i would say that you don't get sword and sorcery i mean lord of the rings isn't sword and sorcery because you don't really have a barbarian character in that that they are very much actually all fairly good people <laughs> yeah and sometimes they screw up like boromir or whoever yeah but a lot of that is kind of like falling under the influence of something evil yeah they um, do tend to have yes. noble hearts let's, yeah let us not be diverted by tolkien no it's <laughs> so easy to be diverted by tolkien <laughs> <laughs> okay so why does sword and sorcery have such a bad reputation okay so we have to consider when it was written um and while no one has stopped writing sword and sorcery since its inception in the 1930s, its popularity has waxed and waned over the interim decades. Yeah, I think part of it comes down to the whole literary snobbery thing. So, you know, for a long time, for decades, in fact, that if you were writing fantasy, you were writing it for children. And this is very definitely not for children. Yeah. Um, and if you wrote this type of fantasy, you were writing pulp, not mind-improving literature. So it's the same sort of stigma that got applied to writing science fiction in the same sort of era between the 1930s and 1970s. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. 
I think some of it came down to Robert E. Howard's imitators um, also, who were just not as good in terms of either storytelling or understanding social issues. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll say right here, Robert E. Conan the Barbarian gets a lot of stick for being sexist. And I think when some people have done, I mean, that's another thing where you had Robert E. Howard, obviously he died, people still wanted more Conan stories. And um, Robert Jordan, who finished off the Wheel of Time series, <laughs> um, also uh, wrote more Conan stories and sort of revamped them a bit for a new age. Mm-hmm. I think he made them more sexist and the ones people remember are his. If you actually look at Robert E. Howard when he's talking about things and the other things he's written, he wrote a lot of female-led fantasy way before anyone else was doing it. He had female barbarian characters as well so for example red sonia okay yes she's depicted as being this you know sex tall sexy redhead in a fur bikini but she's also an absolute powerhouse for character do not be deceived by that 1980s film which i have a weird affection for despite it being terrible i also feel like you know it's fair enough she's wearing a bikini so is conan yeah, in fairness, yeah, he is. Everyone's if ever look, if it's it's equal if everyone's scantily clad, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> um but no, he was very outspoken. He he was very case of no, there's no reason you can't have female characters, there's no reason they can't be cunning and clever and magically gifted. Not everyone who's magically gifted needs to be uh, a seductive sorceress, although some of them can be. Mm. It's like they need to be full characters. So he was very outspoken about the whole thing. His actual Conan stories, considering the time they were written and everything, um, they're not... I don't find them sexist. He really doesn't play the damsel in distress trope very much. That's something that came in much later with Robert Jordan. Mm. Um, so, yeah, a, a good a good portion of that is people reading Robert E. Howard going, wow, I want to write something like that. And I can understand that because haven't we all, you know, read something and gone, I want to write something like that. Yeah. But then you bring your own preconceptions and things to something which maybe didn't have those preconceptions before. Yeah. And, um, you know, that they, a whole, basically a whole bunch of male writers went, I want to write like Robert E. Howard. And they wrote Sword and Sorcery, and they they really did write the pulpy version of it. And again, there's nothing wrong with pulp. People find it entertaining. But yeah. they did layer over some of the, the sexism that the, the genre came to be known for, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I think we also have to lay a portion of the blame on the covers, which yep. were almost <laughs> always lurid and suggestive with overly muscular men in loincloths. Uh, with barely clothed damsels in distress somewhere in the background or sometimes draped over them. Yep. <laughs> um, even those which featured female main characters, and there were a fair few of those, um, tended to focus on the heaving bosom on the cover. Yeah, big time. Yeah. Um, honestly, the point of those covers was to be eye-catching. The, the point of any cover is to scream, this is what this book is about, to its target audience. Yeah. And they weren't wrong. The people who were reading those books certainly originally were, in fact, men. And the people who, uh, who were not men who were reading them um, were not put off by the covers because they knew what, what the book contained. Because those covers were screaming, this is what it contains, even though, you know, often the content was not sexist, not not necessarily about boobs being out all over the place. Yeah. Or women just being prizes, etc. Yeah, but um, it was definitely a certain type of fantasy. Yeah, <laughs> it, honestly, if you look at the covers 
covers the covers for gothic novels for the same era, mm. you generally have a blonde or a brunette looking scared back over her shoulder at a gothic mansion as she runs away in her night gown, bosom heaving. Yeah. It doesn't matter if that scene ever happens in those books, and quite often it doesn't. Yeah. It's a case of this very phallic castle type thing in the background and a woman running away from it in a scantily clad screamed gothic genre to people who wanted to read it yeah exactly but if you weren't reading it and you looked at the covers and went oh well that's clearly just trash it's like you'd probably be forgiven for, for a certain assumption there well i mean it's like <laughs> i think i sent you that version which is someone had done a cover like that for pride and prejudice yeah oh like God. a legitimate cover and you were like i don't think you've read the book <laughs> Um, But I think probably one of the biggest issues was the barely concealed sexual liberation that the books contained. Um, The MCs tended to sleep around a lot, regardless of their gender. Uh, They were not shy about it, they weren't keen to settle down, and they didn't feel any shame about it either. Um, While there often is an equal Sorry, while there often is an eventual love story, sex is treated like a physical need and a fun pastime, not something which is confined within the bounds of marriage. Yeah, this is a big element in Sword and Sorcery. Not in every single book, obviously, and Mm. not all of them have on-page sexual activity. And again, it depends which decade they're in as to how sexually explicit they are. But even the implication of it was a huge deal. Yeah. So we're back to pre-World War Two for early fantasy and you have got a man going around seducing women and sleeping with them, um, Three Musketeers style. Yeah. So everyone's like, oh, Three Musketeers, one for all and all for one kind of thing. Yeah. And it's like you do realise that they're not actually great guys. They just basically shag their way across France and defraud people out of money. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great story. It's loads of fun and it's very funny. But let's not pretend that these are the most honourable people either. Their only real loyalty is to themselves, possibly yeah. to the next pretty face who comes along. <laughs> and it, it because it comes out of that that oeuvre of um, sword and cloak type fiction, mm. um, sword and sorcery does include a lot of that kind of like, well, what if there weren't consequences? This is fantasy. We don't have to deal with this. There's no one. There's gonna be no shotgun wedding here. Yeah. And there is an element of oh well maybe the whole thing where women are throwing themselves at, at these overly muscled barbarians it's like they're being they're being treated like prizes and it's like yes that's true have you read any female led sword and sorcery because the women do exactly the same thing yeah absolutely um then <laughs> i mean it happens both ways guys <laughs> it happens both ways um and i have to add here that there is you know, and from a very early point in time, there is a lot of gay sword and sorcery. Mm-hmm. And when I say gay, it's more a case of, I like the shape of you, yeah, let us spend a night together, I don't really care what your gender is, kind of thing going on, both yeah. male and female. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so, yeah, but I mean, to a relatively conservative period of time, shall we say, in the West, mm-hmm. pre-World War Two, and and after that, and sort of the the reaction to the 60s shall we say um then yeah you can see why people are like no it's trash it's absolute trash yeah and absolutely. the covers seem to support that opinion and it's like well yeah there's lots of sex and violence and everyone finds it very entertaining <laughs> no one feels bad about any of it yeah um 
I feel like, you know, despite the fact that it did start as a predominantly male-led genre, both in terms of writers and characters, um, despite the damsels in distress who seemed to be falling out of their clothes, <laughs> who were often the reward, as, as Jesse just said, um, despite all of this, sword and sorcery is one of the subgenres in which women quickly distinguished themselves and became respected. Yeah, that's that's a huge point, actually. And okay, I'm not going to go into too much detail on this particular author because I have very mixed and complicated feelings. Um, but part of that is down to Marion Zimmer Bradley, who was a massive fantasy powerhouse in her time. And mm -hmm. instead of doing what seems to be in fashion at the moment, which is you make it, you get a seat at the table, and then you tear down everybody who's writing in your genre, which seems to be what happens yeah. at the moment. Um, what she did was she opened the door wider and held a hand up and got a lot of other people up beside her, particularly other female writers. Mm. She ran the Sword and Sorcery magazine for years. Um, you can still pick up old issues of it, and it's full of really high quality, um, often female, generally female-led, female-written uh, sword and sorcery type stories with a variety of themes and protagonists and things like that. It didn't shy away from... Uh, having gay characters or even trans characters or anything again mm -hmm. so it's just it, it was such a huge thing so yes um, you could say that Robert E. Howard kind of started it and to a certain extent he did um, but his ethos from the start was no I want to see his, I want to see women in fantasy and just that chink kind of helped a lot more women through the door and those women in turn went no we want more women writers we want more of this stuff for women as well, yeah. female protagonists, etc. We want to talk about this stuff of the time, but in a fun fantasy setting. Um, so in a lot of ways, even though it does have this reputation for sexism, some of which is kind of deserved, it also has this... It it doesn't really get the, the, the props it deserves for, for being egalitarian and equal that yeah. perhaps it should do. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So, I mean, I guess we're coming back to our question of does it deserve the reputation of being sexist pulp? Sometimes, yes. Uh, but overall, I think the entire subgenre is much more than that. I do as well. Um, and as a final caveat on this little section, I would just add that it's a lot of fun. And I think sometimes we're so concerned with delivering a message as writers mm. or you know, imbibing one as readers, that perhaps we overlook the fact that reading is supposed to be fun. First and foremost, it should be fun. It should be an enjoyable activity, um, which means that not everything has to be dissected to the nth degree, which I realise is a weird thing for the dissect dissecting dragons to say. <laughs> um, and as, as we are literally dissecting the subgenre. Um, but sometimes it's okay to let a thing just be a thing and enjoy it for what yeah. it is. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Okay, so let's just quickly go over some of the best parts of Sword and Sorcery. So I think number one, which I think is very appealing for a huge number of reasons, is that it the world doesn't have to be ending. That's such a big deal. I mean, I, I love a sort of like epic fantasy where it's six, seven hundred page books and you've really got to commit to get to the end. And it's, you know, it's going to be immersive and all consuming. And somehow they're going to pull off a, a last minute, like 
loop the loop kind of thing where they manage to survive. Um, that's great, but that's also exhausting. That's a huge commitment. And it's really nice to read a smaller little adventure story that's just kind of like, okay, my big trial of the week is I have been robbed. I've got to track down the people who did it and problems happen along the way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. Um... So um, another one, uh, the hero triumphs due to strength and cunning most yeah. of the time. Yeah. Not all the time. Depends yeah. on... <laughs> things have changed. Um, <laughs> which, generally, these are skills that they have at least honed, if not outright earned. Um, that rather than, than being inborn magical gifts or talents and things, not that I'm dismissing that, but there is a lot to be said for someone thinking, I've got a slight knack for this. Um, it's something that gets overlooked with with Conan is the fact that he starts off as a slave and he survives when all the other slaves die, which means he's stronger and he gets more food. Um, and then he's still, as a slave, he's fought in gladiatorial combat. So he's given better weapons, more training, because they can make money off him. And eventually he does win his freedom, by which point he is an absolute master swordsman because he has worked bloody hard. <laughs> to get to this point and yes he's absolutely solid muscle from you know heels to the crown of his head kind of thing yeah um, so there's there's some genetic luck, luck in there but he could as easily have died as yeah. some of the others his sheer grit and determination made him survive even when everyone else was dying all around him um you may not like him as a character but there's a lot to be said for a character who takes the, the hand they're dealt with and plays a bloody good game with it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think, in fact, most heroes in the subgenre distrust magic, which is yep. kind of interesting. <laughs> uh, it, it makes for delicious conflict during the story. <laughs> I love that. And I, I mean, it's something I'll, I'll talk about in a bit, but... Um, it's one of my my favourite things in the subgenre is yes you start off with your typical barbarian character and then they are forced to pair up with a character who has magic and they hate them yeah. and they hate each other right up to the point where it's like yes I'd actually die for you you're, you're my <laughs> yeah, brother kind like, of thing it's like I hate you I hate you I hate you I hate you I would die for you <laughs> yeah classic <laughs> big extremes of emotion um, uh, <laughs> yeah I think the other thing is that the books are shorter. You are getting a shot of high-octane, sexually charged adventure fiction with swords and magic without committing to uh, the George R. R. Martin style of storytelling. Yeah, and that's not dissing Martin's work. This is just a case of sometimes you want to eat an entire banquet and sometimes you want a hamburger you know yeah <laughs> not not everything you eat needs to be seven courses of exquisitely prepared food that you can't identify yeah. sometimes it, it just needs to be something simple yeah. Some, every now and again we just want a takeaway yeah uh, <laughs> um, obviously the focus is on personal battles and gains um, it's much more relatable in a lot of ways mm -hmm. so while we, you know, most fantasy fans who read epic and high fantasy and noble bright or even grimdark enjoy the whole overarching process of, of getting to a world ending event and diverting it yeah um you know 
I think very few of us can really genuinely 100% see ourselves in that situation. Whereas, okay, I'm going to, you know, the, the people who have been bullying my village, uh, somehow I'm going to train this, this group of misfits into a, a force to be reckoned with kind of thing is a bit more relatable. Yeah. Or even just, you know what? I am fucking fed up of this shit. I'm getting on my horse and I'm going adventuring. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I think because the characters are morally grey, they do the things that we would like to be able to do, even though most of us would go, actually, we wouldn't do it, but we yeah. like the idea that we would. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as far as fantasy goes, um, it's the subgenre which challenged views on sexual freedom and sexuality openly way before many other subgenres. Um, I mean, some of the earliest example of gay, bi, and trans characters in fantasy were appearing as far back as the 50s and 60s, thanks to swords and sorcery. Yeah, especially, um, you obviously, there's some sort of sci-fi and space opera of the time as well, which did yeah. a little bit of that and got away with it because of it being science fiction. Um, but generally, yeah, Sword and Sorcery did an awful lot of it. And the reason it it managed to get away with doing something that was this controversial was because people were already going, oh, it's pulp, I'm not reading it. Or people were going, that's my shit right there and reading it, I think. Um, what's really interesting is that you've got people like Mercedes Lackey, who has been writing for decades and produced books that were not young adult because young adult didn't exist as a category but we would mm. call it young adult now and produce some of the first gay characters yeah so it was a bit more coded gay uh, in some respects than outright having labels on the page because the labels didn't exist uh, but it was absolutely there and if you had the eyes to see it it was kind of like it, it's there yeah yeah absolutely um, again, at the risk of saying Marion Zimmer Bradley, Marion Zimmer Bradley had an awful lot of lesbian characters. Yeah. Writing in the same sort of time period, Anne McCaffrey, to a certain extent, although she didn't really write Sword and Sorcery. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it's kind of a big deal. And, you know, well, when we start giving the new style of epic fantasy props for all this groundbreaking stuff, it's like someone else broke that ground over before you. Yeah, that doesn't mean what you're doing is not good. It's like, but just let's just remember that you're not the first kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the the last thing is that as far, I, I mean, the heroes. Well, I mean, usually they they will be acting heroically, sometimes without meaning to, um, but they're actually far from perfect, um, and they don't do good for its own sake. They tend to be self-interested and morally grey. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are necessarily bad people, but they're often put in a situation where it is every man for himself. That do does tend to be the world. It tends to be a very harsh world, and they are kind of taking care of themselves. They're looking after number one, as it were, um, which kind of also makes their heroics when they do do it even more notable because it's not that within their heart they ne they are necessarily someone who's going to be running out and always going to be trying to do the right thing. It's that they genuinely make connections in that moment and they are. it's a bigger sacrifice for them to do the right thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think if you compare it to something like 
noble bright or um or basically epic fantasy then you generally have a character that will as as we've said act heroically in the end but along the way they may well ally themselves with a villain just because it's convenient or they may well sacrifice an ally because it it nets them a better result so they will do bad things as well yeah yeah absolutely I think also, to be honest, and this again, it relates to the lives of Locke Lamora, is is this element that sometimes with sword and sorcery, particularly as it goes on, you get to watch them become a better person. Um, usually when they gain the power to be able to to think beyond just themselves. Yeah, and some of that is growing up as well, because you end up yeah. with a character that's kind of, you know, pretty young, even though they are if you like, at the height of their, their power, or they believe they are. And they start off really cocky, and they make mistakes, and they do stupid stuff. And then as they get a bit more mature, their judgment matures with it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about the 1980s, because we cannot <laughs> discuss sword and sorcery without a brief stint through the 1980s. <laughs> Step into the time machine, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um I think the genre grew in popularity between the 60s and 80s, with the 80s really kicking things off uh, with sword and sorcery appearing on the screen. Yeah, that was a big deal. Yeah. Um, honestly, if you watch those films now, and I'm, I'm talking of things like Krull and Legend and uh, Ladyhawk and, oh God, there's absolutely, there's, there's a lot of them. Um, some of it can be a bit squicky. Um, Certain parts of them can even be cringeworthy. I mean, honestly, the best bit of Krull is the whole thing with the glaive. And, <laughs> and, and bits of Krull are just so... I mean, the actual plot doesn't make sense. Alan and I rewatched it recently and we were like, this is actually made for £2.50 in a bag of chips, isn't it? It's, just, <laughs> it's like, this is... It was funny, but it was, it was not a brilliant film by the measure of brilliant films. However... Um, Despite this, despite the, the overlay of sexism that crept in, for example, in the 1982 film Conan the Barbarian, um, a, a layer of sexism that wasn't really there in the books it's adapted from, mm. these fantasy adventure stories were massively popular and massively influential, and that's the big deal. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the mania for sword and sorcery has given way to epic fantasy for a while thanks to Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings um, and actually the, the Game of Thrones TV series. But we wouldn't have any of those if there were not sword and sorcery films cheaply made first. So you can look at it and go, wow, that is, like you say, made for a... <laughs> that's, that's shockingly bad effects. Yeah. <laughs> but in a lot of ways, that paved the way. It really, really did um, for kind of making making fantasy more mainstream making I mean, fantasy that, we had to beg basically yeah, we did and i think the other interesting thing is that we see how actually those kinds of films provoked and helped the people who made went on to make new stuff you know it inspired them a lot it, it made it possible and obviously Game of Thrones was a massive game changer so was the Lord of the Rings um, trilogy um, the the movies massive massive game changers in terms of how we sort of had fantasy on the screen um, 
but yeah, I, I completely agree that sword and sorcery kind of <laughs> slicked the uh, <laughs> slicked the slide, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for making that sound really dicey. So I didn't mean it to sound dicey. I just meant, you know, <laughs> grease the wheels. Yeah. <laughs> All I'm saying, <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying. I've got, I have got an affection for a lot of those 1980s films, even though in some cases the acting's not that great. Yeah. Or the effects aren't that great, and sometimes the story is just not brilliant at all i mean i really like red sonia but i remember watching it as a child and thinking this is brilliant and partly because it's like wow female lead female barbarian character brilliant um even though her backstory is that her village was burned everyone was killed and she was raped and left for dead and it's yeah. like that's not a great backstory to start from no. however from there it's kind of like I got older, I, I did martial arts, learned how to use a sword, then I watched the film again, I was like, oh, that's not swordplay. I don't care if you have got Arnold Schwarzenegger not being Conan the Barbarian, but essentially being Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> it's yeah. like, that, that, that's not swordplay. What the Because <laughs> this was back in the era where everyone was like, no one knows how to use a sword, it'll be fine, the audience won't know the difference. Yeah. And it's like, you watch the old Errol Flynn films, and it's like... Okay, if anyone's done the least bit of fencing, that does not look like swordplay. To be honest, I think there is the absolute charm of how the action sequences go. Because if you have Xena, the warrior princess, right? Yeah, again, sword and sorcery. Sword and sorcery, yeah. Um, and so bisexual. Yep. Uh, <laughs> the thing that always amuses me is... If you look at some of those fight scenes... They're they improbable. Make no sense. It's like getting into a backflip and flying through the air and stuff like that. And the thing is, we know, but it doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't matter at all. <laughs> uh, yeah. I've met so many, so many other bisexual people and and lesbians who have said, who have sort of like in, in very hushed tones confessed to me that. It was Xena Warrior Princess that made them realise. <laughs> yeah. Realise where their orientation lay. And I'm like, yeah, I can understand that. Good on you. It was Star Trek for me. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we need these things. We obviously. do. Obviously. We need them. Okay. Okay. Let's look at some examples of sword and sorcery. Um, I'll kick it off with. Uh, it, again, it's young adult, but all there is really young adult. It's the Song of the Lioness Quartet by Tamora Pierce. Yeah. Um, Tamora Pierce has later come along and said that, yeah, um, Alana, the main character of that quartet, is pretty much gender fluid. Um, so anyone who is reading it that way could read, it, read her as a gender fluid character if they wanted to. I didn't really. Um, basically, that. Alana's arc is, and this is before everyone started doing the same thing. Uh, Alana wants she she is gifted with very strong magic, but she fears it, okay. and she's not she doesn't really want to use it, particularly if she doesn't have to. What she wants to do is go off, um, become a, a page, and then a squire, and then gain her shield as a knight. Her brother um actually wants to go and study magic he's he's her twin brother and he also has strong magic he wants to do the studying and she's like yeah well they're not going to let me be at night because i'm a girl and 
then Tom, her brother's kind of like, well, I don't want to be a knight. I don't want to learn sword play. I'm going to get hurt kind of thing. Yeah. And she's like, oh, you should go off to the convent. They teach the girls magic. So they switch places. <laughs> and they pretend that Alana is not Alana. She's Alan. Um, and she dresses as a boy. She's 10. So she dresses as a boy and... You know, she's quite short for her age and stuff as well. So she has a lot of stuff to overcome with. It doesn't dress up the fact that there are physical differences to someone who's going through male puberty and someone who's clearly going through female puberty and trying to conceal the fact. Yeah. Um, pitting herself daily against men. And it's just a really great coming-of-age story, but it is classic sword and sorcery at the same time. She eventually comes, but subverting things. So you've got this this knight character, the barbarian, if you like, mm -hmm. who eventually comes to the part where she acknowledges that her magic is part of her and is important as well, and she needs to learn how to control it. Um, and she is pitted up against these ancient beings in this strange ruined city that, you know, desire control over all kind of thing. So again, the very Lovecraftian type creatures. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff. And it, it does subvert expectations on the whole sword and sorcery front. Okay, female protagonist. The barbarian is also a mage. Um not everything is about killing kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay to be vulnerable. So it, it does an awful lot of that and it does it very well. It's not Tamora Pierce's best series in my opinion, but um there's a reason it's got an enduring charm and I think it's aged very well. Okay. Um, so next one is the Valdemar uh, Valdemar series, uh, which is Mercedes Lackey. Yeah, I mean, I have to admit that I'm I missed these as an as a teenager, mm. and I'm only really picking up a lot of this and reading them now. Um, I'd read some of Mercedes Lackey's other books, but not the Valdemar series. For for reference, the Valdemar series is a series of interconnected trilogies and quartets yeah. um, set in this world called Valdemar. And uh, you have heralds, and their, their very important job is obviously getting message across this warring kingdom. Uh, so it's a slightly unusual slant on the whole sword and sorcery thing. Um, there are obviously mages and spies and things as well, and magical creatures so you have griffin riders yeah and, and you know psychic horses and all sorts <laughs> it's great as you do <laughs> they're a lot of fun her books are very very readable and while they contain some stuff that we might consider dated i think they've aged very well i'm finding them really engaging and entertaining i have to say i I'm liking going back to some of this old fantasy because it doesn't feel like I'm being judged by the owner, the, the writer of the book, mm. which with some of the recent influxes of fantasy sometimes feels like, it, it almost feels like the writer is sitting you down and saying, I want you to really think hard about yourself, think of all the things you've done wrong kind of thing. Yeah. Which... It's not, you know, that, that might be an improving thing to have in a book. It's not necessarily an enjoyable thing to keep reading over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, uh, what about Lady Hawk? <laughs> Look, okay, Cards on the Table, this is still one of my favourite films ever, even though <laughs> the background music is proper 80s synth. <laughs> um, and even so, though some of the shots and things... Have you ever seen it? I have not, no. Okay, 
you have to watch it because I think you'd actually really enjoy it. <laughs> it's not that chunky. It's um, it's got a bit of a fairy tale about it. it. It's set in in France, and you have Charles of Navarre and Isabeau, and they fall in love. Um, but the bishop of that area, and bear in mind that unlike England, France is divided up into these massive land, uh, land, land blocks that meant yeah. that you know, a noble could hole up on their land and it's essentially their own private kingdom. Well, this massive land block is owned by the bishop. Yeah. And the bishop wants Isabeau for himself, never mind the fact that he's supposed to be having taken holy orders, living a holy life, and she doesn't want him. So he makes a pact with the devil and he (laughs) has her turned into a hawk uh, by day and Charles of Navarre is turned into a wolf by night. Well, Isabeau is human. So they're both still alive. He hasn't murdered them. And they're always together, but they're forever apart because it's literally just just as the sun is coming over the horizon or going down, they might see each other for a minute, but it's for a second and it, they can barely... They never touch. Yeah. And while they're hawk or wolf, they are loyal to the other person, but they, they don't really remember in a human way, if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And there's, they, they're like that for years until they cross paths with a young, a young thief who you'd really like, mm-hmm. um, called Philippe. He's Philippe the mouse because he's so small, um, who somehow gets tangled up in their love story by avoiding execution, and ends up helping them solve the entire thing. So it's really from Philippe's point of view, and it, again, it is classic sword and sorcery, and it's just such a great film, despite the terrible background music. <laughs> okay i will have to check that out (laughs) definitely um obviously we've talked about conan the barbarian uh if you know the the original books are worth checking out yeah i think probably the robert jordan ones are worth checking out i just don't rate them as much um the film is good fun okay yeah (laughs) it's it's got bits in it that are like hmm not sure about that yeah um, but it, it, it was, it's also one of the first times we ever see a female warrior character on screen, so I think it needs to be given props for that. Yeah. But I should say that's not how you make a sword. Don't try and make a sword like that, guys. Yeah, that is absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> um, do you actually... This is Sorry, this is a quick aside, but with um, Conan the Barbarian, obviously we haven't mentioned He-Man, Oh um, my god, no. <laughs> well, there you go, back to the 80s. 80s He-Man, proper He-Man. Yeah, which I think a lot of people would say was sword and sorcery. Um, it doesn't have the same grittiness as Conan the Barbarian, obviously. No, it was very much... I mean, okay, here's the story. What happened was they over-ordered Conan the Barbarian figurines and then realised they couldn't sell them all. So they had a massive brainstorming session to come up with something that they could sell to kids more easily. They took the excess Conan the Barbarian figurines and they rebranded them as He-Man and then created an animated series for kids to be shown on a Saturday morning Yeah. so they could sell these fucking over-ordered Conan figures. And that is how (laughs) He-Man happened. (laughs) Seriously, it was entirely down to commercialism. Yep. Oh, what a surprise. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, legend, which you did mention earlier on, obviously. Legend. I love Legend. <laughs> <laughs> Shockingly badly acted. It's one of Tom Cruise's first films. Um, but 
it I mean in some ways it te- it sort of tips slightly more towards the fairy tale fantasy side of things but it's still technically sword and sorcery um again you have you have Jack, who is basically Jack in the Green, yeah. who lives out in the forest, and Lily, who is a young, basically a young noble maiden, mm-hmm. and um, they, you know, they're courting, they're in love, and then there's a big mistake where Jack takes her to see the two two unicorns, two sacred animals, um, and Lily is so pure and lovely, she wants to touch one of them, and the unicorn male is bewitched by her beauty and allows it, which causes a chain of events whereby one unicorn is basically killed. Yeah. Or has its horn taken, um, allowing a new age of darkness to be ushered in. And, you know, she really goes through the ringer trying to get everything back to the way it was before. She didn't mean to, she did it out of ignorance. Yeah. And it's just, um, it's it's a really great fantasy film with this host of sort of weird fairy type characters and things <laughs> in it, and morally dubious characters. Um, and of course, poor Lily gets abducted by the <laughs> by the Lord of Hell, who decides to make her his bride. Of course, <laughs> as you do. Because <laughs> heaven forbid anything be easy. <laughs> heaven forbid everything be easy. But I mean, ultimately, love triumphs, kind of thing. But again, this is kind of a self-interested thing because Jack just wants to get Lily back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and Lily's kind of like, no, I have to actually make amends for what I did. I didn't mean to in- result in a unicorn's death kind of thing and, you know, usher in a new age of darkness. Yeah. <laughs> oh, by the way, I don't want to marry this dude with the big horns either. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I feel like as well that this is because we, we had a lot of um, interpretations like the Hercules did you see did you see the Hercules series and stuff like that? Um, I didn't watch it quite as I, I found it worse than Xena Warrior Princess. So, yeah. And I thought he was such a himbo that I wasn't really interested. <laughs> but yes, I did see some of it. Yeah. It's it's interesting because it's I do feel like a not only did the sword and sorcery, you know, genre sort of affect the rest of sort of things that were coming in, but it had a big effect on sort of how they adapted fantasy mythology and stuff like that as well. And so like we pointed out, kind of the barbarian is basically the creator of He-Man and, and, and you have things like legend and you have things like Xena warrior princess and stuff like that. And I really do feel like then when they were trying to adapt or create new things, they sort of used the sword and sorcery formula. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I really think they did. I mean, the whole series of adventures thing. Yeah, absolutely. One, it, I think it changed with Xena, but it, basically one episode didn't necessarily lead into the next episode. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. A brief mention for the Frost, Flower and Thorn duology by Phyllis Ann Carr, which I'm hoping to reread. But that's another interesting take on the sword and sorcery genre from the 1980s. Yeah. Um, Frostflower is a warrior who, at the very start of that first book, wakes up feeling sick, wants it to be a hangover, and then realises that she's probably pregnant. And then she's kind of like, well, fuck, 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 fuck. I should have, like, been a bit more careful the last time. (laughs) 
and she intends to get rid of the baby because you know it's a she's a barbarian she doesn't you know she's a warrior she just does not have time for a child kind of thing but she ends up crossing paths with thorn who is an enchantress and the enchantress was kind of like well actually i really want a child so how about you have the baby i'll help you along the way etc and um you know i'll look after the child and i'll bring her up as mine kind of thing and uh they end up teaming up together and you and then later on there's a bloke who comes along and there's this weird almost sort of like three parent family thing going on (laughs) which is kind of cool that does sound cool ah polyamory um I think sorcery did it first. Hooray! Okay, Silver Glass by J.F. Rivkin, which I have just read. Um, yeah. This is great. This this is a dual perspective. It follows Corzan, who is a female barbarian. Um, she is violent, lecherous, um, extremely competent with a sword, um, relatively clever, but also very very quick to take offence shall we say and she's yeah. a sword for hire and there's also the lady Nicasia, who is a mage and a scholar um, and is being forced into a marriage she doesn't want and she's a shrewd political player she's tr- she's outplaying the other members of her family Right. she's a mistress of disguise and um, a consummate flirt and she sees something and wants it and goes for it and they end up basically Corzan is hired to kill Nicasia. Uh, Nicasia lures her back to her rooms and then makes Corzan a, a counter offer and says, Actually, my family's going to kill you once you've killed me because they're not going to leave a loose threat. If you become my bodyguard instead, I'll pay you X amount, etc. And they end up forming this unlikely alliance which eventually becomes a sort of friends with benefits situation. Mm-hmm. Um, both of them go off and have affairs with other people. And at, at the end of this first book, you kind of get to the point where Corzan is like, yeah, no, I, I, you keep getting yourself into trouble. Um, you need someone to keep to watch your back. So I'll follow you. I'll keep going with you as long as you keep paying me well. And, <laughs> and yeah, I don't think the two of them stop sneaking away to you know shag for for the entire quartet i think it's kind of like a, yeah it doesn't matter if we're married or through anyone else we you know we, we've still got this friends with benefits thing going on we're going to do whatever we want <laughs> <laughs> i like that <laughs> and they're both i mean there's at one point where they've literally just you know <laughs> been going for quite some time and they've stopped for, to catch their breath and nikesha's talking about the man she's hoping to marry and uh, Corazon's like, oh, yeah, he sounds really hot. And then she's talking about the man that she might consider settling down with one day. And the case is like, yeah, actually, he does sound kind of hot. And then they just start again. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, that's, this is very uncomplicatedly bisexual. You're not just scratching each other's itches. There is a genuine friendship here. It may not be a love story that other people, that a lot of people sort of be really for, or at least not so far, although mm-hmm. I suspect it might go in that direction. But but the whole ease of the whole thing is um, is really fun to read. And, you know, it, it's a short, fun read. Hmm. Okay. Lots, uh, lots of magic and swordplay and stuff. <laughs> I'm going to definitely have to check that out. It's a good audiobook as well. It, it was really nice. It was written in 1986. So even for the time, I think, it, and for the genre, I think it was really quite progressive. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. 
so I mean there's lots and lots of other examples of, of sword and sorcery but I, I feel like I have to ask is it something that you ever think that you would write Jules um if I can find an interesting slant on it, maybe. I've got so much I've got to write before I get to that, <laughs> which is that that's the thing that would hobble me. But in terms of would I find it interesting to write? Yes, I think I would. I think it would be nice to write fantasy adventure fiction, which is essentially what it is, um, and play around with some stuff and just write something that was ideally short, although it's me we're talking about, so yeah, who knows if that would work out, and, and just fun. Yeah. Yeah, I I think I'd be kind of interested in doing it, but I'm the, in the same sort of situation as you. <laughs> I've got too many things to write first. Too many things to write. Um, but if I ever kind of explored Varen's story, it would probably fall more into the sword and sorcery. Yeah, I side can of see things. that. So, yeah, I guess we'll see. Um, okay. Well, I think we've actually kind of hit the end of the episode. Um, I'm interested to hear what our listeners think. You know, uh, have you rethought sword and sorcery? Are you suddenly going, oh, actually, that was sword and sorcery. I didn't think of that. Um, You know, are you thinking maybe you'll go and check it out now? Do let us know. We always love to hear from you. Uh, Before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And this week, Jules, I believe that you've got one for us. Yes, I've just talked about it, but I'm going to recommend Silver Glass by J.F. Rivkin. It's part of a full book series. The books are around sort of 250 to 300 pages, so they're short, and it is fantasy adventure. Um, there's lots of sword play. There is a fair bit of on-page sex as well, I will warn you. Okay. <laughs> um, but it is not just sort of, it's not male-female all the time. There is... <laughs> there's hints of of polyamory and all sorts of other stuff in there as well and it's just really good fun adventure fiction um, which doesn't take itself too seriously subverts a bunch of tropes and has some truly funny moments it was really good fun I can't wait to read the other three books okay all right I'll be interested to hear what you think about them and on that note guys we will say thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week yeah thanks and goodbye Bye! You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.